Before we turn in our Bibles to the sermon text this morning, I want to pray uh, our prayer of illumination. This is what we do at Antioch, and so I neglected to do it during the pastoral prayer because I was kind of on autopilot. But in this prayer, we ask for the Spirit's help for the reading and hearing of His Word, and especially for the preaching of the Word. So please, let us unite our hearts together again in prayer as we seek for the Spirit's help in the ministry this morning. O Lord, our God in heaven, we plead now for Your Spirit. Send him forth from before your throne to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, that in the reading and the preaching of the word, our wills might be renewed as the Spirit applies your truth to our hearts. And we pray that you would open blind eyes and unstop ears that have been resistant to your truth, and that you would lend power to the preaching of your word. For you know the frailty of your servant, and you know our great need. Lord, pour out the heavens May your spirit come down, that the reading and particularly the preaching of your word would accomplish all that which you intend it to do this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Be reading just the sermon text, verses 35 through 38, the very end of of chapter 9. And as I read, note that this too is God's word, holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient for faith and practice, as we read. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Here's a question that some of you uh, who've been through job interviews, so not the kids yet, I hope, but some of you who have been through job interviews might have heard, what gets you up in the morning? Boys and girls, you might be thinking, if you had to answer this question, well, my mom got me up this morning, but that's not what the question is really asking. That's not what it's about. Instead, this question, especially in a job interview setting, is a colorful, if a bit of a corny way of asking what motivates you. Uh, In other words, why do you do what you do? So how would you answer it? What would excite you to get out of bed in the morning on any given day? Uh, Maybe a party to go to or a, a special project to do around the house or an appointment to keep, a certain person you plan to see at some point during the day. I I would imagine that what gets you up in the morning to come to Christ Church here in Mount Pleasant is to worship God together and to hear Pastor John preach. Now, what does Jesus, our Savior, say to answer that question? How does he answer that question in relation to his earthly ministry? What was Christ's motivation for ministry when he was laboring here on earth, gathering to himself disciples, proclaiming the gospel. 
under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew gives it to us in our text this morning. And it fits perfectly with uh, Matthew's gospel and how Matthew has, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, been presenting Jesus Christ for the first nine chapters of the gospel of Matthew. You see, the eternal Son of God has set aside the outward show of his infinite splendor, glory, and might, and taken to himself a true human nature, and that in a low condition. What that means is in a hard life. To do what? What was his mission? Matthew tells us in chapter 121, the son of David, our king, has come to save his people from their sins. And as the gospel progresses, we learn in clearer and clearer words and pictures that he will stop at nothing to accomplish this mission. Ultimately, he will lay down his life to redeem us from the debt we owe. He will pay the penalty we deserve. He will redeem us and clear the way back into the Father's life-giving presence by his wonderful grace as he breaks the power of sin and death. So may it be the case, even as we start the sermon today, I'll put this out there, may it be the case that everyone here this morning believes this gospel of the kingdom with unshakable faith and unassailable confidence that in Christ God saves sinners. Back to Matthew's gospel. After identifying with his people in his baptism in chapter 3 and then the wilderness trial in chapter 4, as his ministry began, we found Jesus dispensing wisdom, performing miracles of healing and deliverance in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and then into 8 and 9. But as we get to the end of chapter 9 now, the question remains, why? What is motivating Jesus? If he's fully man, he has a motivation. What was it? What drove him? And dare we say it, what drives him still as he maintains this ministry in heavenly places? The answer to that question is instructive for us as a church because we follow him as a church in that mission and with that same motivation. Because Christ's compassion for sinners is the gospel model and motivation for the church's ever-expanding ministry. To repeat, this is what I hope to make clear from the sermon this morning. Christ's compassion for sinners is the gospel model and motivation for the church's ever-expanding ministry. We'll consider this truth about Christ and his ministry to, in, and through his people in two parts this morning. First, Christ's compassionate ministry described for us in verses 35 and 36, and then second, Christ's expanding ministry pressed upon us as a directive in verses 37 and 38, his compassionate ministry, his expanding ministry. Look at verses 35 and 36 with me, if you will. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. These verses present to us a description of Christ's compassionate ministry in Galilee 
as recorded by Matthew in the first nine chapters of his gospel. Verse 35 summarizes the king's uh, or Christ's kingly program. And then verse 6 records Christ's compassionate observation. So we're going to break it down even further into two subpoints: Christ's kingly program and Christ's compassionate observation, that observation which followed the completion of the opening phase of the program. You see how these things go together as Christ is reflecting on what's, uh, what's been done already. Matthew had introduced Christ's Galilean ministry in chapter 4, verse 23, with almost identical words as we see here in 9.35. This is a summary statement that actually brackets a section as it's repeated for us. It signals to us here in this place the close of uh, this opening section of Matthew's gospel that contains Christ's definitive teaching of the kingdom and preaching, which we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as recording for us the early miracles of healing and deliverance, which confirmed the truth of his message. And so it's very important to understand this section from 423 to 935 as a discrete and even mission-critical section at the heart of Christ's purposes in his ministry. It's fitting that the summary of his kingly program, therefore, is a description of the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the word attended and confirmed by miraculous healing. So the emphatic note, the emphasis is on Christ's teaching and preaching, and fittingly so. The statement in verse 35 describes three things about Christ's kingly program, the where, the how, and the what. Um, The strategic reach, where it is he's going, the delivery method, how it is he's doing what he's doing, and then the defining content of his uh, ministry, that is the what. Uh, what he's announcing. In the first place, Christ strategically reached, notice, all the cities and villages in Galilee, all the cities and villages. His itinerary was laser-focused on people, and it was comprehensive in scope as he went wherever the people were. Gospel ministry, this is what we should derive from this, gospel ministry is people ministry. In certain corners of Christendom, there are churches shutting down for lack of people. The communities have moved out or moved on. Local populations are moving and changing. And and there's always sorrow when a beautiful historic church has to close its doors or become a museum or something. But if we reflect on that, there's really no tragedy if there are no people there. Precisely the opposite is happening before our eyes here at Christ Church in Mount Pleasant. The Lord is drawing people within the bounds of your habitation more and more, day by day, here in the South Carolina low country. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, my wife and I, our family, has been watching you from afar, occasionally visiting with great joy, watching what the Lord is doing in your midst as your congregation grows, as officers are nominated, trained, and elected, and as the ministry rolls forth here at Christ Church. Brothers and sisters, what I've seen and what I can testify to, if someone were to ask me over many years, is that you are here for what Christ would have you to do here. And I hope that encourages you to hear a visiting preacher say that. I know you're here for it as this population boom just continues here in Charleston. And by way of exhortation, you need to be here for that. There's all kinds of things that may distract you, but you need to be here for this. To divert your attentions from gospel ministry would be a failure of strategy, would be a forsaking of even Christ-likeness, 
in your situation and in your mission as a church. Because where did Jesus go? He went to the people. Now, the second feature of Christ's kingly program described here is the how. That is what the delivery method of his program. How it is he accomplished what he was doing and pressing a particular truth on his hearers. Christ's ministry was, and I hope you see this, didactic and hortatory ministry of the word, a ministry of explaining and applying God's word, a ministry of teaching and proclaiming a particular message for God's people in their religious meetings. Notice he goes to the synagogues, the gathering places, the meeting houses of the Jewish people in Galilee. Christ did not come to buy up land and to develop it or to lead a political movement or to produce beautiful works of art and music or theatrical productions or to set up a booming marketplace or coffee shop in Galilee. None of those things are bad, by the way, and they're all good vocations for Christians to pursue, but they aren't the church's mission as the church, following in the footsteps of Christ our King. And so we ask, okay, what did Jesus do as head of the church in his ministry? Well, Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of heaven by means of teaching and preaching. He came to renew, to strengthen, to energize God's covenant community as the church, and literally in church settings, as made clear in the text. The miraculous healings that he performed, they confirmed his identity and his ministry as God-promised and God-given, as messianic, as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But notice, he did not come as a medical doctor or merely as a miracle worker. Rather, he came as a teacher and preacher of the gospel, explaining and applying God's word in such a way as to show forth the kingdom of heaven, to glorify his Father in heaven, and to call men to faith in God and repentance from sin, sin which had infected the religious community. He came as the greatest gospel reformer of all time. So, why do you admire this Jesus? Do you admire him as a reformer, or as so many of the crowds do, as a mere miracle worker, someone from whom you can get something, but not someone who has a glorious, God-exalting mission. We are to admire him first and foremost for what he did as our Savior and King in his life. How did Jesus accomplish the grand mission of restoration and deliverance and reformation? By teaching and proclaiming or preaching the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we're all supposed to be teachers and preachers, by no means. And that doesn't mean that your pastors and your teachers and your preachers are any better than any of you. That's not what this means. But what it means is that we, as a people, are corporately committed to Christ's mission because this was his mission, and he's our king. Now, the third feature of Christ's kingly program is the what. That is, what was the defining content of his teaching and preaching to the people. What did he teach? What did he preach? It is Christ's saving message that makes Christ's ministry admirable and worthy of our attention this morning and every morning. Christ came teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is what the miracles confirm for us, that Christ has come bearing good news of restoration, 
the good news announced by the prophet Isaiah, where he said, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, and who brings good news of happiness, and who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they see with their eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted, that has strengthened his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. This is very, very good news. What too many of Christ's hearers did not understand, however, is that this kingdom which Christ was inaugurating, which he was bringing in, this kingdom of heaven, was utterly unlike the political kingdoms of this world. This kingdom that Christ is bringing in, he brings in by righteousness, not by force. The righteousness of Christ who accomplishes salvation on our behalf by his sin-atoning death on the cross and which will bring forth the fruits of righteousness as it takes hold of your hearts, as the Spirit of Christ applies the gospel to you. God saves sinners. What was the message, the defining content of Christ's ministry? The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel which draws men by the words of Isaiah, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return. That's covenantal language, mind you. Return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, and he will abundantly pardon God's compassion then is revealed to us in the next verse of our text, in verse 36, where we have a record of Christ's compassionate observation following upon this description of Christ's kingly program. Look at the verse with me. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That's a fine translation, but I prefer to say he felt compassion for them because compassion is a feeling, mind you because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Christ has completed the first phase of his kingly program. We get the bookend verse there in 35. And now Christ's reflecting on what he sees as he's taking it all in, and he feels compassion for the people whom he had seen on the mount, in the cities and in the villages, in their synagogues. He has compassion for them. He loves them. This verse serves as a narrative hinge between sections. Looking, it's looking back on Christ's very successful first phase of his uh, earthly ministry, but it's also anticipating. It's looking forward to the, the second phase in which Christ will begin to face more intense opposition from the scribes and the Pharisees, in which the kingdom will be expanding more and more into Galilee and then into Judea. And what Christ observed and what Christ felt as recorded here is important for understanding why Christ and why his disciples are going to persist through this second phase where the opposition is, is coming up upon them. And then beyond, as the persecution becomes especially fiery. 
Like a watchful parent noticing something off about a child, Jesus could detect something off about the people of Israel. He could detect a spiritual misery, a depression among the people because he had a special love for them. He has seen them, and they are unwell, and he's not going to leave it like that. He has seen them harassed and helpless, as the ESV puts it so poignantly, uh, distressed and dispirited, as the New American Standard puts it all equally well, or as I would put it, weary and beat down in typical West Philadelphia fashion. That's how I would put that. Something has happened to them that has left them in a sorry spiritual condition. And Jesus uses this Old Testament pastoral or shepherding language. These two words together would describe sheep, uh, even in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint. They, they go together. His hearers would recognize a motif here. And he's using this language to compare the people that he sees to sheep without a shepherd. Because sheep, like our little ones, are truly very needy creatures. They're utterly dependent on their shepherd, just as our little ones are utterly dependent on their parents. Once lost, the sheep cannot find their way back to the fold. When they're in trouble, they throw themselves down on the ground, and they really just give up, and they start bleeding. Does that sound familiar to any of you parents with toddlers or who have had toddlers? You know what I'm talking about. I have six kids. I definitely know what Jesus is describing here. What would happen to sheep without a shepherd to bring it home to us, the same thing that would happen to distressed and dispirited, harassed and helpless, weary and beat down toddlers without loving parents. The description here in verse 36 is, as I said, one of depression, spiritual depression due to deprivation. Something has been withheld from these people that they desperately need. No shepherd, no help, no life. That's been their experience, whether they know it or not. But Christ was born in Bethlehem to shepherd God's people, as Matthew 2.6 tells us. And he makes his compassionate observation in Matthew 9.36 the way that he does precisely because he has come to reverse the damage which has been wrought by bad shepherds in Israel. We got a glimpse of that in the intense passage that we read from the Old Testament this morning from Zechariah chapter 11. But it's even more clearly described for us in Ezekiel 34 where the prophet condemns the bad shepherds and also in Zechariah 10.3 in the previous chapter chapter from what we described, where we see God's wrath being kindled because the shepherds in Israel have been mistreating His people, His flock. And so what Christ observed is the effect of this mistreatment, the spiritual deprivation and depression of the people. And it is that special love which Christ has for these distressed and dispirited people that then motivated him to act. That compassion which he feels with intensity and even with pain in his humanity. What Christ felt was compassion, not a mild, sentimental, sympathy kind of compassion like, oh, that's too bad, but a true shepherd's compassion for his sheep. A deep, paternal affection which a virtuous, noble, and tender-hearted father feels for his children, a visceral compassion in, in his gut. You know what I'm talking about. You fathers know exactly 
uh, what this is. In terms of motivational power, nothing can match this. This is what drives men to march off to war, to run into uh, the very jaws of trouble, to tackle an active shooter. It's that feeling of protection, of wanting to bless your children and to keep them in your care. That's what Jesus is feeling here. I want you to capture something of the intensity, not just of the language, but of the reality expressed here. He felt this compassion when he had observed their condition because they were in distress, and he alone was sent to, indeed, he alone was able to address their need. For those of you who serve in the church as officers, as Sunday school teachers, as volunteers in any capacity, as leaders in this congregation, this is the kind of compassion for Christ's people, the earnestness that you need, both for those in the church presently, but also for those whom the Lord has yet to draw into your congregation, those who are yet in the visible church, those elect of God, perhaps unknown to us who they are, but who are out there like sheep without a shepherd. Paul describes it in Romans 9 as an intolerable burden, a compulsive heartburn, you might say, which motivated him in his apostolic ministry in which we see motivates Christ in his earthly ministry. You must feel compassion like this for the lost sheep, the suffering sinners in your community, in your family, those close and those far away. Well, how can you nurture such a compassion? How can we be like Christ in this? See, this is a nature thing. What do I mean? You can't muster this up. You can't manufacture it by force of will. There's no, you know, 10-step program to produce father-like compassion for those around you. There's no self-help book that's going to help you figure it out. But as somebody said to me a long time ago, if you love the Word, love the Lord, and love theology, but find yourself not loving sinners, not loving people, then pray for God to effect the necessary nature change to make you more like Jesus, more like our compassionate Savior. And consider this. Put it in another light. It was for devotion to the Father, perfect faithfulness to His mission, and true compassion for sinners that Jesus suffered the torments of God-forsaken crucifixion and death on Calvary, literally. Indeed, it was the Father's compassion that Christ Himself shared by nature and expressed in His ministry upon which we ground all our hopes as individual Christians and as a church, and thus which we ought to emulate in our own ministry to which He calls us by the help of the Holy Spirit who works it in us. So that leaves us then on to verses 37 and 38 as we now consider Christ's expanding ministry, specifically how He frames and launches His ministry as it expands to include his disciples, not only as followers and students, but now as co-laborers and ministers, and as it expands into the surrounding area in these two different ways. And this, too, is tied into the Old Testament shepherding metaphor or theme motif of leadership. You see, at, um, on the verge of entering the promised land, Moses, in Numbers 27, track with me here, he petitions God. He makes a very particular prayer to God to appoint a leader for the people, lest they, quote, be like sheep who have no shepherd, end quote. 
like Moses, Jesus in Matthew 9 recognizes the need, indeed the inevitability of an expanding ministry, and he takes action for the good of the people for whom he is concerned. But the action is probably a bit different than what you and I would think of as action. Look at these verses in Matthew's gospel with me. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The action of verses 35 and 36 have revealed to us Christ's compassionate ministry. Now his discourse is what he says, his teaching and his instruction in verses 37 and 38 make known to us Christ's expanding ministry. In verse 37, Christ frames the expanding ministry by giving a twofold rationale for what he's about to direct his disciples to do. He's going to tell them to pray. There's no surprise there. But he gives two reasons for why before he even gets to the direction. He speaks authoritatively here as the master teacher to his disciples. And though I generally advise against red-letter Bibles because they can be distracting, it is especially the case in Matthew's gospel that Christ's direct speech, those, that is, the words that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, should grab our attention. How does Christ, the wise teacher and leader, frame his ministry situation uh, that exists before him and, against, and, and before the disciples? He changes the metaphor from shepherding now to farming, and he frames the situation as a harvest ripe with opportunity. This is deeply significant. By characterizing the ministry situation as a plenteous harvest, he skips over the hard work of sowing and the largely invisible process of, of growth. Now is harvest time. That's what they're facing. The sowing was accomplished by others. God has brought forth the growth. Now it's time to call in the reapers to bring it in. Perhaps we see evidence of this in the enthusiasm of the people for John the Baptist's ministry in Matthew chapter 3 and in the spreading fame of Christ as, as crowds are, are coming to him and people are obviously recognizing him as the son of David, the Messiah promised in Isaiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament. Wherever there is a widespread desire for what Christ was doing, namely preaching and teaching, the harvest is indeed ripe. What's needed are preachers and teachers. And uh, just by way of, of side note here, isn't it thrilling? When missionaries come to visit you or when Pastor John will return from Germany and, and one of the things they say is, you know what's really needed? More men to go out into the harvest because the need is great. We need more workers for this work to which Christ has called us because it's fruitful and the opportunity is there. That is a thrilling word to receive, isn't it? I worked at Greenville Seminary for six years, and I loved going around and telling people, we need the best and brightest the church has to offer to come to seminary, be trained, and then get sent out by their churches into the mission field and into the work of the ministry. The opportunity is there. And I can testify, because I coordinated the pulpit board at Greenville, there were more churches needing pastors than there were graduates and students to fill the need. The need is there. The harvest is ripe. But that's not all. That's just the first part of the rationale for what's coming in the next verse. Not only is the harvest plentiful, but there's this problem. And this second piece of the rationale, I've already hinted at it, uh, 
for why it is that Jesus is going to tell his disciples to pray. The problem is the workforce is woefully puny. The workers are disastrously, even catastrophically, too few. There's just not enough men. And why is this a crisis? A harvest left unharvested will spoil and be wasted. It'll get destroyed by hail or saturated by rain that it doesn't need. It'll rot on the vine, so to speak. A harvest left unharvested is a disaster. But as this metaphor suggests, Christ has come to do for his people what Joel 2.25 predicted of God's work in Israel. That is to restore the years which the locust has destroyed. So what instruction does Christ hand down to his disciples in verse 38 as he takes action to bring in the harvest, to restore the years which the locust has destroyed? Look at verse 38. He says, Therefore, for this reason, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. In these words, Christ moves beyond framing this ministry of his that's expanding as a harvest, and then launching his program of ministry expansion. Now the great leader gives his first directive. This is the inaugural instruction Christ gives to his disciples. This is the first thing he tells them to do for the kingdom. He's taught them how to pray. He's taught them in what manner to forsake hypocrisy as they fast and give alms and pray. But now he's giving them a new direction for the kingdom, He doesn't say, uh, go ye therefore. He doesn't say, always be preaching and teaching. He doesn't get there yet. He will get there later on. He begins with a call to prayer. Prayer. Christ's goal is to secure the harvest of souls, and the very first action step he delivers to his disciples is to pray. They are to pray to God, the Lord of the harvest, and they are to petition him to guarantee the successful ingathering of the soul harvest by sending out workers into the harvest. Then Christ will enact phase one of the actual sending in the next chapter, in chapter 10, where Jesus actually answers the prayer. He just commanded the disciples to pray. Let's take a moment just to reflect on this. If I suspect if a marketing consultant were to go into a boardroom of a Fortune 500 company to propose a plan for bringing a new product to market and to attract customers, and he said, listen, guys, The first thing you need to do is to beseech the Lord of the market to send out workers into his market. Then he would be laughed out of the room as a fool, and he wouldn't collect his contingent commission. See, the world has no time for prayer, but you and I must make time for prayer. We must. For Matthew in his gospel presents Christ to us as a superlative wise reformer king when he calls us to pray, when he calls us as a church to pray as a church. Indeed, Jesus is perfectly wise in his leadership as a teacher and guide of his disciples. To make this case, the late Harry Reader uh, had a very helpful way of describing what Christ was doing in his earthly ministry. Uh, Harry would say, Christ carefully defined, developed, and deployed his followers as wise disciples and productive citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Harry called 3D leadership. Christ Jesus was defining, developing, and deploying his disciples as leaders. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, we've seen Jesus do only two of these things. He's 
defined kingdom citizenship in terms of heart righteousness, forsaking hypocrisy, drawing near unto God. He's begun to develop his disciples as leaders for the restored covenant community, calling 12 men, representing 12 tribes of Israel, to himself as he's bringing them along. Only at this point in 938 does he begin to deploy his disciples as productive workers. How can I be productive in the kingdom? First step, pray to the Lord of the harvest. In this verse, we actually have all three of Jesus' wise leadership dynamics at play, these, these 3D leadership that Harry talked about. Christ defines citizens of the kingdom of heaven as those with faith enough to pray, with proper affections shaped by spiritual realities and concerns, with hearts renewed to, to want the harvest to be brought in. And then Christ develops citizens of the kingdom by giving them instructions for the whole community, which will shape and benefit individual citizens in maturity as they follow his instruction. And then finally, Christ does indeed deploy them as citizens of the kingdom of heaven by setting them upon productive kingdom service that will yield an unfailing spiritual fruit. It's especially important that as a church, we follow Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king in this blessed direction to pray for workers to enter into his harvest. And here's why. If I haven't convinced you already, this is why you, Christ Church, need to pray for this. Nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else is going to do what Christ sets forth here for the church to do. Our government leaders are not tasked with praying for gospel workers. The marketplace, the academy, they're not going to pray for gospel workers. It's not their job. Christian families will pray for gospel workers to be called up into service, but only if the church is obedient to Christ and therefore helps families to establish that holy habit in prayer. So there's a reason, a profoundly wise reason for Christ to privilege the spiritual work of prayer and specifically for gospel workers as his inaugural instruction, his first deployment directive given to his disciples, given to us as the church. But again, the question, why? What motivated Christ to do this? Got a call back to mind what we just explored in verses 35 and 36, because it all goes together. We know from Hebrews 12, too, that it was for the joy set before him, that is the joy of presenting redeemed humanity to his Father, that Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we know from our text today that it was for compassion, for the love of sin-sick men that Christ taught the gospel, proclaimed the gospel, healed the sick, and cast out demons on his way to the cross. And this compassion has direct bearing on the church's ministry today as we have this directive now to pray for gospel workers to go and to proclaim and to teach what Christ proclaimed and taught. We see Christ's compassion has direct bearing on your ministry as Christ Church Presbyterian today, even if you're not ministers, if you're not preachers or teachers or what have you, as Christians and as a church body. Note Christ's compassion for sinners is the gospel model and motivation for your ever-expanding ministry in the midst of this population boom in Mount Pleasant and Charleston and wherever the Lord will take you. A true grasp or apprehension of this truth 
will lead you together as a church to do a few things, to be vigorous in outreach, generous in hospitality and diaconal care, persistent in service, conscientious in stewardship of your property and material resources, exuberant in your worship as I know you are, zealous for truth, and nothing short of visionary in your expansion of all of these things. But don't miss where this all starts. This is a spiritual effort, and the primary means of what you do here are fundamentally spiritual in nature, and nothing is more spiritual, to put it crassly, than getting on your knees and praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest, an invisible work which you and I cannot see, but which God is wholly committed to doing. This effort begins before the throne of grace where we are to seek the indispensable help and blessing of God our Father through Christ the Son by the Holy Spirit. According to the Word, what Christ's compassion for sinners graciously models for us and then motivates us to do, therefore, is to pursue ministry expansion by the spiritual work of prayer before anything else, resting in the sufficiency of His grace, the grace of God who alone saves sinners. So is this surprising to you that to hear it framed this way. Not only is this something important to pray, this is the first thing for us to do. Are you startled by the premium that, that Christ seems to put on prayer and this particular prayer in our text this morning? All other good and even necessary tasks, I contend, are put on hold for this inaugural instruction in Christ's teaching, this definitive, definitional directive for it is a defining feature of following Jesus to want to see sinners saved by the means that God has appointed. We must not proceed with other action before we pray with faith in the Lord of the harvest, the almighty God who hears us. If we're truly compassionate, if we really care about our neighbors, if we're truly concerned for the good of those around us and for the glory of God in heaven, and for the good of those whom he has not yet called to himself in the preaching of the word, then we will bring this petition to the Father. Again, I say, send out laborers into your harvest. What Matthew's gospel unfolds from this point forward is that in and by Jesus Christ, this prayer has been answered and is being answered today. And it's been answered over and over and over again to the glory of the Lord of the harvest. So let us pray. O oh God, our God in heaven above, we bow ourselves before you, committed to that which you have laid before us, to pray for workers to go into the harvest, that your kingdom of grace might extend to the remotest bounds, even to the ends of the earth and the kingdom of glory might be ushered in. And we rest in the sufficiency of your grace, for we know that this is Christ's work alone. This is not a lifeless demand or a burden sent upon us. Lord, this is a good and gracious word from our wise reformer king. And we pray that you would set into our hearts a zeal and an earnestness to pray together as a people for this ends, the glory of God, the good of our neighbors, the expansion of your kingdom, that the gospel might be known. In Christ's name we pray.